You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Bonus episode, Robespierre. Thanks for joining me. This episode is the last of the bonus shows. We'll be discussing one of the most controversial figures of the revolutionary era, the incorruptible Maximilien Robespierre. I don't want to get too bogged down walking through every aspect of Robespierre's biography. This episode would drag out to several hours, and I'd be duplicating the work of dozens of much better qualified historians who have written whole volumes about him. But for those of you who aren't familiar with him, Robespierre was a revolutionary politician who became the most powerful leader of the First French Republic during its most radical phase. The peak of his power only lasted about a year, between 1793 and 1794, but this period coincided with some of the most memorable episodes of the revolution. Dechristianization, mass conscription, the heyday of the sans-culottes, and of course, the terror. Robespierre was from Arras, in northern France, near the border with Belgium. His family was relatively obscure, but they were solidly middle class. Robespierre came from a long line of lawyers, clerks, and bureaucrats, and he would go on to become a lawyer himself. He was recognized as remarkably intelligent from a very early age, which earned him scholarships to good schools that might otherwise have been out of reach for someone of his background. The young Robespierre became a committed disciple of the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, convictions he would carry with him the rest of his life. After leaving school, he returned to Arras and quickly made a name for himself as a lawyer. He mostly defended the poor and worked on what we might call civil rights cases. In his spare time, he wrote essays on politics and philosophy. These works didn't get much national or international attention, but they earned him some fame in the local Enlightenment intellectual scene in Arras. All of this made Robespierre a natural choice to represent the Third Estate when King Louis called the Estates General in 1789. So Robespierre was part of all this stuff we've been talking about the last few episodes. So why haven't I mentioned him? In those early days, Robespierre was too radical to be a real mover and shaker. Moderates, like Lafayette, all thought he was a crank. But if you'll recall where we left off the narrative in episode 8, the moderates were losing ground and the radicals were beginning to assert themselves. This is when Robespierre's star really began to rise. He was one of the prominent leaders of the Jacobins, the most successful of those new populist political clubs, and his speeches were reprinted and praised in the booming radical press, 
Going beyond where we left off in Episode 8, as the Radicals grew more powerful in the streets of Paris, their influence in the Assembly grew as well, and Robespierre quickly became recognized as one of their parliamentary leaders. I think it's interesting to note that he was kind of a unique figure among these rising radical political personalities. Most of this wave of revolutionaries oozed charisma. It's a cliché, but oratory really was an art during this period. People expected to be entertained and dazzled by their politicians, and most of the radicals of the French Revolution delivered. Danton, another Jacobin leader, was a gregarious, backslapping everyman who could pivot in an instant from humor and sarcasm to soaring, transcendent rhetoric. His colleague, Camille Desmoulins, was young and handsome, and exuded passion and righteous indignation. If Robespierre exuded anything, it was a kind of professorial coldness. He wasn't charismatic or skillful as a speechmaker. His speeches were intellectual and verbose, and usually delivered in a quiet monotone. People sometimes found him boring or hard to follow. He was awkward in personal interactions, and had trouble remembering names and faces. Terrible qualities for a politician then, just as they would be now. Even Robespierre's appearance was uninviting and formal. He was the last delegate of the assembly to continue to cling to old regime fashions, powdering his hair and wearing breeches. So how did this man, who was seemingly so unsuited to politics, rise to the top? Aside from luck, of course, I would point to his moral clarity and convincing vision for the future. Those are incredibly important assets in uncertain times. Every time the revolution grew more radical, Robespierre's worldview seemed to be vindicated. He seemed like a man who had answers when no one else did. But throughout 1792, Robespierre was still just a rising opposition figure. The moderates were still in charge. He wouldn't have real political power until 1793, and by that time the country was in a state of dire emergency. Most of Robespierre's time in leadership was spent fending off the various threats to the revolution, rather than implementing his own vision. Hopefully that's given you some idea of who Robespierre was and what brought him to power. Now I'd like to delve a bit into his legacy. He's generally had a terrible reputation in the English-speaking world. Before Stalin or Mao, Robespierre was usually people's go-to example of a ruthless revolutionary tyrant. I hate the idea of playing devil's advocate, but I think we're long overdue for a little nuance on the subject of Maximilien Robespierre. There are a lot of controversial aspects of his career, but I think his role in the terror looms above them all, so I'd like to focus on that. If you're not familiar, the terror was a period of about a year between 1793 and 1794. This is the era of the French Revolution that we see the most in popular culture. It was ideologically radical, and there was lots of official and unofficial violence against enemies of the revolution. It also coincides pretty closely with the period in which Robespierre was most powerful, and it ended with his execution. Here's how it happened. By the summer of 1793, France was at war with almost all of Europe. Enemy armies were invading from all sides, and the Allied powers were making public threats about destroying the entire city of Paris. 
On top of that, there were not one, but two large internal rebellions against the revolutionary government, one led by conservative royalists, one by moderates. Between the two of them, the Paris government had lost control of almost half the country. And let's not forget about the problems that had led to the revolution. The French economy and finances were still a mess. In that kind of national crisis, after four years of political turmoil, we can only imagine how poisonous the atmosphere was. No one could tell which rumors to believe or who to trust. If you somehow still hadn't succumbed to fear and paranoia at any point in the four harrowing years since the beginning of the Estates General, now was the time. That was the mood when Robespierre came to power. Complete chaos and national hysteria. And that's the environment in which the terror developed. I don't want to defend the terror. I don't think it is defensible. During this period, the revolutionary government dispensed with due process and engaged in indiscriminate mass killings which included innocent people. Some were pronounced guilty purely by association. Revolutionary armies employed collective punishment against entire communities. Young children were tried as adults and executed. There are no circumstances that make any of that worthy of celebration. That said, it's important to keep a little perspective here. Fewer than 20,000 people were killed during the terror. It's a bit macabre to be haggling over the significance of thousands of human lives, but Stalin's executioners killed that many in a week during the Great Purge. This was not totalitarian state repression on the scale of a 20th century atrocity. As I said last episode, understanding unsavory things usually means getting into the heads of the perpetrators. And the traditional narrative of the terror in English-language literature is misleading, and it needs correction. The traditional view is that the terror was orchestrated by Robespierre in a flight of puritanical moral zealotry. Many authors paint him as a moral absolutist who rose to a position of dictator and wielded unlimited power to eliminate anyone who disagreed with his worldview or fell short of his exacting ethical standards. I wouldn't call that narrative entirely wrong. Robespierre was, undeniably, quite puritanical. There are positive and negative aspects to that trait. On the positive side, he was no hypocrite. He held himself to very high standards and was absolutely single-minded in fighting for the poor and oppressed. He didn't take bribes or show favoritism. On the negative side, he could be quite self-righteous, and was vindictive to colleagues who fell short of his ideal of a good public servant. Robespierre had an extremely dangerous tendency to view his own beliefs as objectively correct, which of course made any disagreement either disingenuous or malicious. So all of that was part of Robespierre's character but I think people are mistaken to look at that as the primary cause of the terror. On the most basic level, I think it's just generally a bad idea to look at one person's personality as the explanation for a huge historical event. But even if you do believe individual people are the main engine of history, I think Robespierre and the terror would be a bad example. For starters, he was far from the only person wielding power. Robespierre's authority during this period came largely from his position as a member of the Committee of Public Safety, which, as the name suggests, was a parliamentary committee charged with internal security and public order. France was fighting two insurgencies and a foreign war, 
and the state of emergency to face those threats inevitably meant the Committee of Public Safety became more powerful. So powerful, in fact, that it became the de facto executive branch of the revolutionary government. But Robespierre was not the only member. Twelve delegates sat on the committee. Robespierre was probably the most influential of the twelve, but they were all political players in their own right. They decided things by majority vote, and Robespierre was not always on the winning side. And as a parliamentary committee, the Committee of Public Safety and its members were still technically responsible to the rest of the legislature. It's often argued the rank-and-file members of the parliament were too afraid to act against Robespierre's wishes. But that's exactly what happened when they voted to arrest and execute him in the summer of 1794. So if the terror wasn't just an extension of one man's personality, what caused it? I see it as just one particularly well-documented facet of something much bigger. All of France had sunk into chaos and bloodlust. The revolutionaries felt besieged on all sides, menaced by enemies they could not confront directly. So they lashed out at people they could confront directly. At the front, the rebel armies fighting the Paris government committed unspeakable atrocities against supporters of the Jacobins, both real and imagined. France's foreign enemies fought in common cause with these rebels, and were publicly talking about leveling a city of hundreds of thousands. This was a brutal war. No quarter asked, no quarter given. The terror was part of how one side fought this war. And that's where most of the worst abuses of the terror occurred. On the front lines, in cities recently captured by the Jacobins, or in Jacobin-held towns that were in danger of falling to the enemy. Fewer than 3,000 people were executed in Paris over the course of the terror. By contrast, in Nantes, in western France, near the heart of the royalist insurgency, nearly 5,000 were killed in the space of just a few months, when the city seemed to be in jeopardy. I think that also calls into question Robespierre's personal culpability. Obviously, he approved of the terror in principle, but there was no centralized procedure set down from Paris as to how it was to be carried out. Most of the worst atrocities of the terror were carried out this way, under the initiative of local authorities with little central direction. So if so many other people share the responsibility for the terror, why is it so closely associated with Robespierre? I think a big part of the explanation is that the other revolutionaries chose him as a scapegoat. By mid-1794, the position of the Paris government had improved immensely. The moderate rebellion had been suppressed, and the royalist rebels were being pushed back. Against all odds, the revolutionary armies had pushed all of the foreign invaders out of France. That summer, General Jean-Baptiste Jourdan won a major victory against the Austrians, deep in their own territory at Fleurus in modern Belgium. The danger wasn't past, but it no longer seemed quite as imminent or existential. The revolutionaries had the breathing space to take stock of things, and many of them were appalled by the extreme measures that had seemed so necessary months before. Both the public and politicians inside the revolutionary government began to turn against the terror. But Robespierre took no notice of the shifting mood and changing circumstances. By this time, the stress of command had begun to wear on him. According to some analysis, he actually had a nervous breakdown around this time. The worst aspects of Robespierre's personality came to dominate. He became more imperious, more inflexible, more severe. 
The revolution was looking more secure by the day, but the Committee of Public Safety was showing no signs of slacking in its work of ferreting out traitors. In fact, the pace of prosecutions actually increased. The whole revolutionary parliament had been complicit to a degree in allowing the committee to do its bloody work when it had seemed necessary. Blaming the excesses of the terror on Robespierre and his allies gave the rest of the parliament a politically convenient way to bring the policy to a quick conclusion, and at the same time exonerated them of the worst abuses. Robespierre was already an attractive scapegoat because he was the public figure most associated with the terror, but on top of that, he was beginning to be seen as a liability. He had become increasingly obsessed with imposing his eccentric religious beliefs on the country. Robespierre seemed to be cobbling together a new religion out of Enlightenment thought, classical illusions, and, of course, the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It all got pretty weird and was not well received, but he did not take the hint and kept right on pushing it. More worrying for the politicians, Robespierre's reputation as the incorruptible did not just apply to moral principles. He was also incorruptible in the most literal sense, opposed to bribery and abuses of high office for personal gain. To put it mildly, those sentiments were not shared by the rest of Parliament. The level of corruption in the revolutionary government was staggering by the standards of a modern democracy. Some were worse than others, but everyone had his palm greased on occasion or did the occasional favor for friends or relatives. Everyone except Robespierre. It always makes me think of that line from the movie Serpico, where Al Pacino plays the only clean cop in a corrupt police precinct. Who can trust a cop who don't take money? And just like Frank Serpico's fellow cops in the film, Robespierre's colleagues always had to worry that he'd turn on them and make their corrupt dealings public. And sure enough, right before his downfall, Robespierre bragged that he had the names of several politicians who had been involved in a crooked stock deal. We'll never know if that was just bluster or if he really had gotten to the bottom of something. He was arrested and executed before he could take the matter further. So Robespierre was an ideal candidate to take the fall for the excesses of the terror. And it worked brilliantly. Many politicians who were intimately involved in the terror totally escaped association with it. You might remember Lazare Carnot, the brilliant young military officer who couldn't rise in the ranks due to his common origins. Well, he was actually a member of the Committee of Public Safety right alongside Robespierre. His career continued unscathed. Carnot would play a major role in every subsequent French government right up to the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Same with Joseph Fouché, who zealously pursued the terror as an official out in the provinces, then helped mastermind Robespierre's downfall and punishment for the crimes he'd helped commit. He too served in every subsequent government, eventually rising to the rank of minister. So that's why I always feel a pang of sympathy for Robespierre. He was a deeply flawed man who was complicit in horrible things, but I don't believe he deserves his reputation as the paramount monster of the revolution. If nothing else, I find him a much more sympathetic figure than the crooks and hypocrites who brought him down. So that's it for the bonus episodes. Next time, it's back to the main narrative. Robespierre's idol, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, once said, quote, I have a premonition that someday this little island will astonish Europe. End quote.
The little island he was talking about was Corsica, and next episode we will find out why. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.